You know, most days I feel like a complete and utter bozo when I wake up, and this morning was no different. Reason being, I realized that when I was recording this episode of Hashtag CNF, a podcast where I speak with creators of nonfiction, my good mic, this one, wasn't on. So, you know, my microphone usually defaults to being on in my software, but this time only the built-in commuter mic was used, so I sound a little bit echoey, but I don't think it's distractedly so, so I probably shouldn't have said anything. Um, Tom McAllister, at T underscore McAllister on Twitter, on the other hand, sounds downright regal. Tom makes his triumphant return to hashtag CNF for episode number 35. He's a professor at Temple University, the nonfiction editor for Barrel House magazine, the author of Bury Me in My Jersey, a memoir of his father, football in Philly, and the author of the forthcoming novel, The Young Widower's Handbook. He's also the co-host of the podcast Book Fight, which he and Mike Ingram started in 2012. And that's where this conversation starts, more or less, about podcasting. Lastly, hashtag CNF can now be found on Google Play Music, as well as iTunes, as it has. So be sure to subscribe with whatever mobile device you own. Tweet at me, at Brendan O'Mara, with feedback or questions. And be sure to subscribe to my book recommendations newsletter. That's about it. Let's get rolling. Tom McAllister is back, baby. Yeah, man. So, uh, how, how you been? Haven't have, yeah, like I said, we haven't actually spoken in uh, <laughs> about three years. Yes, uh, I'm all right. I mean, I just got back from teaching a class, which is going fine so far. We're only <laughs> we, we're only at the end of week two, so it's still salvageable. But so far, uh, <laughs> it's been a a rocky start in a couple of the classes as far as people actually, um, you know, doing the reading, mm. showing up making eye contact all the all the basics yeah but, do, uh, do you find that the first two weeks are are hard to get the momentum going in your classes yeah there's so much luck involved right like last semester i had i got lucky that i had a couple of really good groups and so on day one before when i was just doing the syllabus there was like we we somehow accidentally stumbled into a conversation about stuff and so then we kind of just rolled from there like it was already like this immediate chemistry and um, actually, I have a fiction class, and we're, that's going great. Uh, but I have these two freshman comp classes, and whew, right now, <laughs> it's <laughs> it just uh, today it was just like I was begging them to to do anything. So we'll see. I've got to. Have to... Sometimes they come around, though. Sometimes it's just like they need to learn what I want, and they have to understand my sense of humor and the way that I'm approaching things. I guess to develop a trust, right? But yeah. uh, first week, first full week thumbs down (laughs) so yeah it being the the new year and all still kind of uh, i um i've been asking you know a recent guest like how they how they've been processing the past year and then kind of what they plan on doing you know writer goal wise reading goals and uh, forging a path through the new year and I, i wonder for you like what how have you been processing what happened in the the past year, and I, like, what are you? What are your goals for the for the upcoming year? Uh, yeah, especially Please. since you've got the book coming out, the novel. Yeah, uh, man, I don't know how I'm processing. I'd say I'm processing the past year very badly. Is <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, it's just like I'm trying every day to um, find an appropriate balance between reading kind of horrifying news stories and and 
being aware of what's happening and also still being a functional person and not, you know, in a state of constant like panic. Uh, some days, some days have been better than others on that front. Um, like we're recording this the day after there was a real flurry of activity from, from the new president, uh, that that caused a real, uh, goals. He said, reading goals, writing goals. I, um, I'm trying. So this is a really vague reading goal, but, uh, in the past couple months, there was a lot of people writing, basically sharing lists of books and novels that are written by and about countries under authoritarian rule and things like that, I guess for obvious reasons. So at least for now, that's what I've been trying to read. Like I just read this book called, uh, nothing is true and anything is possible. It's a nonfiction thing about, uh, by a reality TV producer who worked in Russia about, um, kind of the way that truth is controlled there and, and created, um, it's pretty interesting. Although again, I don't know if I can stick to it for that long. Cause there's going to be days where I feel really, um, shitty. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. I'm on the West coast now. And, um, so like when I wake up in the morning and I like, you know, look at, look at the news, like the East coast has already been firing for three or four hours <laughs> yeah. and I'm just like, Oh my God, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. There's not a day to catch your breath yet. It's uh, yeah. it's something it is overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah. So as, as creators of some sort, you know, we, we kind of soldier on and, uh, it's funny. I was, um, you know, g- given, uh, that that you podcast them well as well and have been doing it since before the big podcast boom with book fight. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit as well and uh, sure. going back to going back to that and uh, what made you and Mike Ingram want to start it. Um, so we started in I think our first episode posted April first, twenty twelve, for thereabouts, and so yeah, we're coming up on five years of just about weekly episodes uh, and. We started really because Mike had started listening to a lot of podcasts. He listened to a lot, started with comedy podcasts, um, and then he started looking for a book podcast, and he just couldn't find one that he wanted that he liked. It just they were um, at least the ones that he was listening to. Then he felt were all just kind of like too serious or too dry, uh, or you know, it was like the, the This American Life or something, which is its own thing, or the New Yorker podcast. I kind of, um, and so then he told me he really would love. A, a book podcast that is more, that is a little looser, that has more of a, a feeling of kind of camaraderie and friendship and, you know, digression and all the kind of the conversations we would have be having anyway. Uh, and so then he kind of just talked me into it. Cause at that point I don't think I'd even listen to a podcast. Um, and so he sent me a bunch of homework. Uh, you know, he mailed, he emailed me uh, links to like a dozen podcasts that he liked and said, listen to these and see what you think. And then we just started rolling. I mean, for about the first year, we had to figure a lot of stuff out about the basics of how things work. I feel like we hit sort of a comfort zone after that. So what what did that look like when you – what were some of those early hiccups and growing pains that you guys experienced technically um, and also maybe the – you know how you decided to format the show? Yeah. So, I mean, first definitely was figuring out how audio works. Uh, Mike does all the editing and so he had, he had to fig- – he figured out a lot of stuff about basic editing – skills and how to do it a little more quickly um and then we had some issues with audio and we tried to have guests in then we had to upgrade our equipment and everything um and then it was a lot of yeah figuring out because mike and i can talk forever we've been friends for a long time we can just go and talk 
on any topic, but we realized a lot of the early episodes were where they were just sort of hard to follow or we repeated ourselves a ton and we didn't really have any particular goal. And so we imposed, we ended up imposing, I guess what you, what you may call a loose structure on the show where it opens up with like a little, you know, greeting. And then if we'll, we'll spend, you know, the first 25 minutes talking about whatever thing we read, go to a break and the break is really good for us to regroup and say like, Oh wait, have we messed anything up? And then now we've over the four and a half years, almost five years, we've come up with a variety of kind of little uh, segments that we some that we sometimes sprinkle in. Like Mike does the <laughs> somewhat beloved uh, segment called Fan Fiction Corner, where he'll pull up uh, I, some very bizarre fan fiction from the Internet. Uh, some interesting stuff. A lot of really bizarre <laughs> stuff. Um, that's probably our most rec- most regular recurring segment. And, and anyway, the point is, we ended up building in little little segments that kind of force us to stay on task, so that we now now we can pretty comfortably record an hour episode in like an hour and ten minutes. Whereas before, to record an hour episode, we probably sat here for two and a half hours, and then you know had to cut a lot of nonsense out. And early on, were you able to? adhere to a, at least a strict publishing schedule like you were able to at least have that kind of momentum in place yeah that was one that we we agreed like basically had to happen uh yeah. because it was you know that's a, some podcasts that we that well the mike had subscribed to that would post ir, not irregularly or like once every six weeks or and he would just forget to listen uh and so we said like whatever we do we got to be posting once a week um and that's why we ended up doing we can't it would be too much for us between with our, our actual lives to try to do a book a week and that's why we started doing short essays and stories um and also for a while we were doing like a, i guess an ad- advice type thing on um a, more of a question answering it wasn't so much advice but yeah we i think we we've only missed probably about five weeks in those years and three of them were scheduled weeks off where after christmas we just said we'll take a week off and you know catch our breath. And at what point did you guys notice that there was a, a significant or, or serious uptick in, in popularity when you were able to, when things were snowballing and like, oh, okay, that, that doesn't feel like we're just shouting into the abyss. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's like the first, especially the first 10, I was like a, probably a couple of our friends are listening, probably my brother's listening <laughs> and I don't know who else. And, um, I mean, one of our friends told us that he found the first five list episodes unlistenable. And uh, <laughs> I think it was probably about we started to gradually get a little bit more feedback from people who we had never heard of. So that was nice. We're like, oh, OK, at least someone who we hadn't met before is listening. And then I'm trying to think the first kind of big bump we got had to have been. So the the biggest bump we ever got was the there was a brief period where the website the AV Club was was covering our podcast weekly, and uh, we saw a pretty significant jump in listenership from that. Uh, but there must have been a bump right bef- you know, about a, uh, six months before that that got us even on their radar. And I'm trying to think of what that would have been. I don't know if it's just and we used uh, we're both editors at Barrel House Magazine, and so we use that to um, promote a lot. So maybe it was just thanks to the barrel house Facebook page that we ended up kind of gradually accruing enough people to get some of that momentum. If you were starting the podcast, say today, knowing what you know, what might you do differently? Good question. Um, I think the biggest thing that we would 
do differently is probably having started with more slightly more of a structure because we resisted that idea of structure at first because we said we don't want to be too dry and bland and everything else. But um, you need some sort of structure because you're asked, you're inviting strangers to listen to you talk for an hour or more every week. And so they need to have a little bit they can count on. Um, and the other thing. And this is a thing that we've gotten a little bit better at. Early on, we were very reluctant to invite guests on because I actually didn't want to bother people. It's we're basically assigning them homework because we're saying you have to read a book. And uh, we probably would have been a little more aggressive in trying to get some guests on who we otherwise, you know, were reluctant to invite. Yeah, that, those are some of your better episodes, I think, when uh, when you you bring in someone someone else or bringing in someone who's also a writer too like i think you had justin saint germain on one time yeah. he wrote son of a gun and and uh so that that's kind of neat it's like this little wild card that kind of just it's this little aberrant spike in maybe the complacent ear and it's kind of a it's kind of a good it's like a, a nice little change of pace but it's still like for <laughs> to sound business schooly like on brand <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that's I mean, the best guests we've had have been the ones and it's been we've we've been happy. We've been lucky that like for inviting just sometimes complete strangers to my basement. Everyone's worked out pretty well. Um, But the best guests we've had have been the people who yeah just like jump right in and are willing to start arguing with us right away or whatever. Um, And I I like just from a sort of a auditory perspective, I like when we have a female guest on because it breaks up the monotony. Uh, it's not th- three male voices. Yeah, uh, yeah. It sounds a little... And people always tell us they can't tell our voices apart anyway. And <laughs> so sometimes adding in another male voice that sounds sort of similar uh, isn't ideal. Uh, or isn't the... the uh, yeah. It's not what everyone's clamoring for. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's been... I like that. I mean, the guests are fun. They, I mean, they, they break things up and they also make us read things that we would never otherwise pick sometimes. What kind of what does your like, quote unquote recording studio look like? Um, I am so we have an IKEA table. Um, it's just like a you know what would be I guess a small kitchen table um, would. Uh, we're down in my basement. I have a, I have like a finished basement. And we're just kind of off in the corner of it. Um, I think we picked the basement well because it's out of the way, but also because it's it's not too echoey, and um, we have a pretty decent audio equipment now in the past when we started we sat on folding chairs and had just a single like a a snowball mic which is kind of a basically we got it because it's like a starter mic because it's not that expensive so if we decided not to do it anymore it wouldn't kill us yeah that's Um, what i that's what i use right now just for talking into the skype recordings is the some of the blue snowball thing yeah does the trick for you like you said it's pretty cheap yeah, it's yeah, it's actually pretty good quality. That um, especially for an individual speaking into it, uh, it's it's actually really good for just a you know, uh, especially if you're in a quiet room. Um, we had that for a while. Then we ended up we did some fundraising and we ended up getting um, some pretty good mics. So so we have like uh, we got three mic stands set up here and uh, trying to look at the brand of them. Sure brand mics. Um, so it's probably about. Six hundred dollars worth of equipment down here now, actually. Mm, uh, that's awesome. But that was, yeah, and it's it. I felt that it really did. Well, it made us look more, uh, more like a recording studio when we have guests in. But it also, I think, it, I mean, the the audio quality, I think, does come through. 
Yeah, do you put up any like egg carton type stuff on the walls yet, or do you just? You're... Yeah, we've we've talked about it, and then we never follow through. I don't know that my wife would love that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, that is one thing we could do actually to kind of trap the noise a little bit better than we do. And so, how important do you think the the podcast itself has helped your writing? I think one thing, I mean, one thing it definitely makes me think about it definitely, um, there you have, when you sit down to write, right, you have this abstract idea of an audience or what is a reader going to think when they read this. And then, uh, you know, every week sitting down to sometimes harshly critique stories or essay or books, um, is a reminder that there is like an actual living audience there, uh, that, you know, my book's coming out in a couple of weeks and I don't think I'd have the stomach to listen to another podcast talking about my book the way that we talk about other people's books. <laughs> um, and not that we're always killing, destroying other people's books, but you know, we have a pretty, pretty idiosyncratic response to certain books or sometimes one of us really hates one or whatever. Um, and it does, it's affected me in, the, in this way that there's, because you know, half the books I read in a year now are basically dictated by, by Mike because we alternate book picks. It has exposed me to a, some different types of writing where I've, I, that I would not have otherwise done. There was a point where he was reading a lot of and basically assigning me a lot of short nonfiction books that uh, have like lots of like little vignettes in them, basically like DJ Waldy's Holy Land. And uh, I really like the voice of a lot of those. Uh, what's the other one? Um, I think this is probably fiction. Renata, Renata Adler's Speedboat. Uh, but there are some others. And um, that definitely got into my head a little bit. And so the thing I'm working on now actually does borrows a lot from those kinds of, those kinds of voices. During our last conversation, um, we talked a lot about community and uh, specifically the community that you were looking to find uh, and the subject which were uh, – of bury me in my jersey and i wonder if you think the do you think the podcast itself has provided you with a lot of that community that you were looking for and then you know subsequently wrote about in your memoir um yeah definitely and it's like um i actually wrote a thing not too long ago for for the website the millions that where i talked a little bit about that where it was like i was trying to i asked i emailed a bunch of other uh podcasters to ask what do you get out of it how does this change the way you think about books and stuff and they all basically said the same thing which is that they feel like the value of it is not that they're offering some uh critique of where the thing belongs in the canon but that they're building a sense of community around the things they're talking about so that listeners are really interested not so much in whether this is a great book but in whether tom and mike these people who i spend time with every week what what did they think of it um and so now, I mean, it's been really cool that we've got enough listeners where we're there, we've, we've got a uh, kind of a cluster of regular listeners who interact with us all the time on Twitter and Facebook and email. And they're people who we never met otherwise. They're just a lot of, you know, they're in librarians in the Midwest or they're wherever they are. And, uh, but I feel like we, you know, there's like a certain intimacy that you develop with, with people that you, that I didn't really expect. Actually, I went in, I guess, with no expectations, and um, it's 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 pretty cool to have that uh, building around uh, kind of a stupid thing that Mike and I do. Yeah, yeah the uh, audio has a certain intimacy about it, especially if you're walking around by yourself with headphones on. It almost if you feel really plugged in to yeah. 
to a conversation like that. You really feel like you're there. And uh, like I think you said, it, it does, even when you're, like, if I, I'm over here in Oregon, but if, you know, I'm listening to a book fight, I feel like I'm kind of in your basement, like, you know, just kind of eavesdropping on a cool conversation about stuff I like, you know, reading and writing. And, right. uh, and uh, you know, similarly, when especially when I was living uh, by myself, I would get home from, you know, work late at night, working at the newspaper, and I would put in, like, old Simpson DVDs, and I'd watch these <laughs> episodes a million times. So I would turn on the commentary, and, like, having the commentary, it, like, felt like I had – it's kind of sad, but it's <laughs> – but I felt like I had a little group of buddies there as we were watching this episode of The Simpsons. And it's – I don't know. It's similarly like that, like, finding, like, your, you found your own tribe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, now there's yeah, there's a lot of I think that's the motivation for a lot of people who are listening. I mean, some people are just trying to pass time at work or or whatever, but like when people find whatever their favorite podcast is, it's not necessarily because oh, this one episode is some all-time classic of radio, but it's because oh, I found some people I enjoy spending time with. Um and that's pretty cool. That's hard to find in a lot of places. Yeah, and as someone who who writes both fiction and nonfiction, uh what side of that writer coin do you most identify with? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so when I finished grad school, I definitely th- I thought of myself exclusively as a fiction writer. That's why I went to school for fiction. And at least in my program, there was this weird schism between fiction and nonfiction where there was a real rivalry and like there was very little interaction. And um, then I ended up writing the memoir. And the, the first thing I ever published was an essay that ended up as a chapter in that memoir. And then the you know, the memoir happened and then I started teaching nonfiction and I became a nonfiction editor at Barrel House and I said, oh shit, I have to learn how nonfiction works. <laughs> uh, and so um, it took me a longer time, I think, to figure out how to write fiction that I was happy with. Uh, and I think it's because like there's this, um, there, this is going to, I don't know if this is the right word. Uh, it, in nonfiction, at least in nonfiction I really like, there's a certain sort of immediacy where you don't, necessarily have to build artifice around uh, conveying a subtle emotion but you can say you know i was angry when i left this place i guess you can do it in fiction too but at least my conception of it then was if i wanted to convey an emotion in fiction i had to craft this entire three-page scene that conveyed something subtly whereas in nonfiction, i could write two sentences and just hit the reader with it right there at some point i realized there's there's that's a false dichotomy and i can do kind of whatever i want but um <laughs> the lately though i mean mo- mo- i've written a lot more fiction than nonfiction lately though i don't know that it's be- a conscious choice to like identify as one thing or the other it's just been uh i've had more fiction ideas basically that's what i've been uh excited to write about lately do you wish you identified more with one with the other just to make just so like when you hit go to the computer or go to the ledger it's like well there's no choice i'm writing i'm writing fiction or i'm writing you know, verifiably true stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, sometimes I wish I was just more decisive in general because, you know, I'll, I'll have, I think most writers have some like an ideas file or something, right? And I'll have like six half formed ideas and I'll be thinking, like, all right, let's pick one and start going with it. And then instead I spend the whole morning just kind of looking at them and then I do nothing and I go, you know, I walk my dog and I, I give up. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Such an easy so, thing to do. I, I look at my dog. I'm just saying I give up. I'm like, yeah, you know what? A 35-minute walk sounds awful good right now. It's healthier than just sitting down anyway. You know, yeah. there's a, a lot of good reasons to just go for a walk. Um, and so the um, 
I mean, in in general, that's that that's my more general answer. That I just wish I was I could be more decisive about just like let's just let's just write the fucking thing and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's my answer. I'll stick to that. <laughs> I had like a half formed idea for another one, but it was going to end in the middle of a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> as with anybody who's uh, who's come on the podcast and has written memoir, my my often my first question is like why? Like so, <laughs> because it is such a. It can seem very self-indulgent um, on one hand, but it's but memoir when it's done when it's done really well can be uplifting and inspiring and and oftentimes timeless. And I wonder, like, what made you want to write "Bury Me in My Jersey"? Like, what was that impetus? It was like, yes, I I have to I have to write this. Um, that's so I wrote that. So I mean, talking about possibly self-indulgent, I wrote that when I, I started writing when I was twenty-six or maybe even twenty-five. And so there were definitely people in my life, especially non-writer people who were like, what are you writing a memoir for? Uh, what have you done? And um, where it came from for me was uh, two things which I, t- I tried to draw out of my students too, which is this sense of urgency and trying to understand an obsession. And so like the book is about uh, my dad dying when I was 20, which I realized even then was not the worst thing that's ever happened to anyone with a from with their dad. Uh, but it was a thing that I was still clearly not over. Uh, and I didn't realize how not over it was until I started writing about it. Uh, and the obsession part is that was the sports obsession being like a very intense Philadelphia Eagles fan. And, um, I, yeah, I had, I wrote very little in the couple years after I finished grad school. And, uh, the first thing I wrote that I felt pretty okay about, well, I had this idea. So David Shields, before he became, you know, this guy who is trying to change how nonfiction works. And you know, before he became that guy, he had a book called um, Body Politic. And there's some subtitle and it's a collection of essays about sports. And he uh, wrote these things just about like the intersection of sports and politics and race. And they were mostly pretty interesting. And I, I started trying to copy him. And so I started trying to write this essay about kind of about like the weird intersection of race and class and the way that we watch football, especially like often young, poor black men being drafted into the league and playing college football and so on. And it was like this very academic essay. And I sent it to a friend to say, what do you think about it? And he said, it's really not very good. But there was one line. Uh, and that's why I sent it to that friend because I knew he would <laughs> let me know. Um, there was this one line, uh, it, the first line, it said, um, something about, I haven't been to church since my dad's funeral three years ago, but, and he said, that's your essay right about that. And I said, it, it really opened my eyes. You know, it's like, Oh, I didn't realize that was this thing that's kind of sneaking through. And that's, I mean, anyone who's written nonfiction, I think has those like in early drafts, you realize, Oh wait, I thought I was writing an essay about you know, going to night class, night school or something, but I'm actually writing an essay about this other thing, this breakup or whatever the thing is. Um, so what drove it was sort of just like maybe desperation. Cause I was like, Oh, this is actually the first thing I'm excited to write about since I don't know when, you know, uh, not that grad school dr- drove it out of me or anything. It's just that like I left grad school thinking like maybe I'm not supposed to write. What was that period like? You know, because you went to the Iowa Writers Workshop. You know, this very like prestigious writing program. And so, leaving there f- with that feeling of almost like, do you even want to write? Or and leaving there and not writing much. That must have felt you with 
uh, like filled you with something that uh, that was very demoralizing in a lot of ways. Yeah. You had spent what two two years, three years there. Two, yeah. Two. So like after two years of that intensive kind of training, and then to to then not have the energy to want to write or publish, what was that like for you? Uh, it it filled me with a certain level of dread that's for sure uh because it was just like you know you're like a lot of writers like my whole life i'm like okay i'm gonna be a writer and now i went to this big fancy school now i get to be a writer uh and then i get to the end of it and i think oh wait what if this is not the thing i'm supposed to be doing you know and i think that's that happens to people in all kinds of fields right they they hit a certain age and they say they they say wait a second i've been trying to build toward one particular goal and it might not be the thing i want to do or might not be the thing I'm good at doing. Um, and I, I mean, I wrote some bad short stories. I had this novel that, you know, I had sort of like turned in as my thesis, uh, to, to graduate, but, and I kind of tinkered with it, but I mostly went up to my office and said I was going to work and then played video games. <laughs> um, and then I felt terrible cause I would stay up too late playing video games. And I'd wake up in the morning and think like, Oh, well, that's another day. You didn't do anything. And so it was it was a it was a huge relief to finally to have a friend whose opinion I respected really say like, oh, wait, this is good and publishable and you can make a book out of this. And then when that essay got accepted by Black Warrior Review, which is a, a journal, um, it's probably still the best journal I've been published in. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt I mean, I got paid money for it. I got paid money to write. And so I said, oh, wait a second. Maybe I am a writer, <laughs> you know, that's uh, very I, validating. I felt, yeah, I felt a lot less like a fraud, you know, and because you come back and a lot of people in your life, especially people outside the writing world are like waiting now, like, OK, you did your art school thing. What are you working on? And they're, they're being polite and they want to know. They want to say, oh, are you working on a book? And boy, I either lied to them or gave them really vague answers for a long time. Yeah, at some point you've, you've gone through the schooling and then you kind of at some point you have to decide to turn pro. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, do you remember what that uh, was? It that moment when this essay was published that you're like that's your your pro moment when you kind of called yourself up and put and uh, and sort of suited up. Yeah, man, that absolute that email. I still have the email. Uh, I have I have since emailed Alyssa Nutting, who was the managing editor at Black Warrior at the time, to let her know that I feel like she kind of like that was the lifeline in my. I mean, probably in this alternate timeline where they don't accept it, probably I don't just give up writing forever. Maybe, but probably not. And probably I just go into a funk and then maybe a few years later, there's some other sort of breakthrough or at least minor breakthrough where I feel a little bit better, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and so I've, you know, I've, I've, yeah, I've, I'm eternally grateful. Basically a black Warrior review has my, my undying loyalty, uh, for that. Cause they just, um, and it makes me feel good. we, from the barrel house perspective, when we sometimes accept an essay, someone will write and they'll say like, Hey man, I've had a, a terrible run of rejections for like two years. And this just, this kind of saved me, you know, uh, it, I actually, one made me really sad. There was this poem I was reading for a recent issue and I, I liked it, but we just couldn't fit it. And I emailed uh, the author to say that basically, I really love the poem. It's just like weird logistical issues, make it hard to fit into this issue. And he wrote back and he said, it's been a long time since since I've had anything published, but your email really uh, may have saved me because you know I was ready to quit on everything. Um, so yeah, the power of like just a respectful rejection can sometimes put fuel in the tank like that. Yeah, because it's so lonely, you know. And yeah. even 
and it doesn't go away feeling it's just that it changed at different it's at different levels and different directions you feel like that because after i published the first book then i had a book rejected roundly by many publishing houses and then a few years later i had to find a new agent and then i got rejected by a whole bunch of agents and you keep and you like that anxiety doesn't it just comes back in different ways and different forms so what did being a successful writer look like to you when you were in Iowa and how has that changed to where you are now? Or the term that people used to use, at least when I was in Iowa, was uh, a working writer. Someone had, someone had told, given this statistic to someone in our class, uh, that something like 10 out of 25 people in your class will become working writers. And what that meant to me, I guess, was someone who makes enough money on their writing not to have to do anything else. Um, I would change that definition now, which I think is probably a naive definition. Probably well, we might have one person from our class who was at that level, maybe actually, but that's, you know, that's actually kind of rare. Um, yeah, most, I feel most like, all have some sort of steady gig, whether that's yeah. teaching or some form of freelance journalism or something. As, yeah, yeah. Like you said, it's very rare for that, for, just the the writing work to to support is eh, but yes go on for sure yeah or they have a partner who makes a lot of money yeah uh the uh now i guess i define working writer as kind of what i'm doing you know like i i'm publishing relatively regularly i've got i will have had two books out soon um and um and i have a regular old job teaching um but like I'm someone who has written things that have been read by people who don't know me, which now seems like a, it seems like a miracle, right? <laughs> uh, and like I did this thing at Virginia Tech. Uh, they have the student-run literary festival. It's called Glossolalia, and it was great. I mean, they 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 invited me to come down along with this poet uh, S. Whitney Holmes, and it was students would read undergrads and grad students, and then we were kind of the featured people, and. They had a hundred and fifty on a Friday night on a college campus. They had a hundred and fifty people in the room, and they paid me money and they paid for my food, and it seemed it really seemed like a miracle that I get that my job was to like just fly to a college and and read some stuff to people who really like books. Um, That's awesome. You know, it's like and since then I had a real, real moment of clarity while I was in that room, and I was like, oh my god, this is, this is very lucky. You know. Yeah. Um, it won't stop me from complaining if like, you know, next week the novel gets a whole bunch of bad reviews. And, uh, but at least in the, in the, in the, in the interim, I can remind myself that I've had more success already than I realistically expected. I think. What were some of your, uh, the, this would apply to, uh, your first book. Um, what were some of the low attendance readings you've ever done <laughs> i've given a i once the lowest my lowest is four people in the back room of a historical society in saratoga oh. springs so it was it was you know it was cool they were in they were totally into it but they they buried buried us in the back room and did i did as much publicity as i could but they basically didn't do anything and yeah it was tricky and but four people showed and we had a nice little time but it's it was kind of that it's nice to sometimes give other writers aspiring or otherwise some of that (laughs) some of that uh sprinkling of that kind of experience will happen to you (laughs) absolutely uh so were all four of those people strangers or were any of them family or friends they were actually strangers 
Oh, that's good. So that's yeah. pretty. So. Yeah. Cause, so, uh, yeah, because my book was about the Saratoga racetrack in that season. So people in Saratoga could just go gaga over the track. So right. it was, it, it had some reach. So the people who were there were just, you know, yeah, you know, just some old, some older folks who were just genuinely interested. So I was like, all right, I did a little reading and did a mini Q and A, and that was it. Signed some books and got out of there. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's disheartening. And you get up there and you think, like, oh, should I, should we just call this off? Should we tell the two people in the audience, I, you know, let's let's just get a coffee or something? Um, <laughs> I had I'll, I'll, I had two. There was one that was in a, a this. You, now closed independent bookstore called Chester County Bookstore, Chester County Books in Philly suburbs. And uh, it was a huge store. At one point, it was like this, it was a real institution, but you know how it goes. Um, and my wife was there. One of my good friends um, who's who's in the book a little bit uh, was there. And a former student was there with her mom. And the former student's mom sat in the front row reading a different book while I did my reading. And, uh, that was, that was discouraging. Uh, and then there was another one, which was just really bad time. It was, I was being, I was going to read at the borders in center city, Philly, right downtown. So it was a great venue to possibly get people in, but the, uh, Philadelphia Flyers, the hockey team, uh, were playing in game six of the Stanley cup that same night. And so, and my book was aimed largely at sports fans. And so. Boy, there was there was there was no reason to even go. Everybody who would have possibly bought that book was at home. There was one person who sat in the audience besides my wife, and that person came up afterward to ask if I can help get his book published. Ah, nice, <laughs> so, nice. That yeah, that that seems to happen like one out of every two. Yeah. someone comes up to you with their book idea. Yeah, it's uh, it's pr- it's kind of hilarious. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's you know er- earlier in. Earlier in our conversation, you talked a little bit about a, a sense of urgency, which, which I really, which I really like, because, and when I did the transcription of our first conversation, I pulled out a little passage of where you talk about that sense of urgency when people were submitting essays to to Barrel House, mm-hmm. and um, just a little couple sentences here. You you said um, I read a lot of essays when I'm reading submissions, and a lot of them are technically sound and interesting enough but there's no sense of urgency. It doesn't feel like there's anything on the line for the writer. And I love that because the, the, in that there's a lot of that, like you said, urgency, but intention. So in your writing, how do you make sure, how do you sort of calibrate your compass to ensure that there is urgency and that you always have something on the line in a piece of writing? I have to say I, I'm relieved that I still agree with the thing that you quoted me saying from <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it would have been. Yeah, you're like, oh no, not anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's this assignment um, that I give to my nonfiction students uh, where I tell them where the first line of the sentence or of their uh, of this exercise has to be something they're terrified of telling their their mother, um, because I think like it, it's fiction too, but nonfiction especially. There's this this thing in the essays I really love where I feel like the the author is is a f- it has something to lose by having published the thing that they wrote, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or there's something at risk or like they might, and what, that's something to lose isn't necessarily like their job, but it could be a, a relationship or it could be just their own sense of their own, possibly their dignity or their own sense of pride or whatever it is. Um, and so I think the bit the main thing I try to keep in mind if I'm reading 
um, something I wrote that I want to feel still feel urgent is like if if I'm in a middle draft, am I bored by it? And if I'm bored by it, what's what's the thing that's missing? Am I holding back, or do I have is the thing I'm writing is there is the idea just not not good enough? You know, um, so I, it's I mean that sounds like the most subjective sort of arbitrary thing, but so many times in a middle draft you start reading and you say, oh, this is just really boring. Why would anybody ever read this thing if I don't, you know, if I'm not invested in some way? How quick are you to discard those things that glaze your eyes when you're in the middle of the writing? Or, or how much time do you allow it to sit there in the, in the event that maybe it'll come around to be more relevant once you finish up and do a few rewrites? Yeah. Uh, first drafts, I plow through without looking back at all, basically. I mean, you know, I'll make a handful of edits if I typos and things like that. But I just I just roll. I try to generate a ton of words. And I know a lot of other I have some of my friends like Mike, my my co-host and book fight. He's um, he's very deliberate where he wants to make sure every line is right before he starts moving on. Uh, for me, that I, that sort of paralyzes me when I do it. Um, and so I'm pretty willing to throw a, a bunch of stuff out there knowing a lot of it's going to end up going um i'll usually give things a chance through at least the third draft uh sometimes it's around draft four or five where i'm like i get i keep coming back to a thing and i finally have to say all right tom you know this doesn't work you just have to you have to get rid of it now um but for me i mean actually that's been when i was in grad school and the years after it was much harder for me to commit to actually deleting things. I was, you know, the whole kill your darlings thing. I was, I agreed with it in principle, but then when, when it came time to actually ruthlessly edit things I was writing, I was, I was very bad at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I, I almost, I almost like to call it just like putting your darlings in prison or something. Cause I'll, <laughs> like, I'll cut off the limb and I, I'll put it on a, in a scrap file and be like, okay, Oh yeah, this is here. This is the, the DVD extras. <laughs> um, and uh, just it's just so it's not completely killed, but um, invariably, man, you if you've written a five thousand word thing, if you lop off two thousand words, it just it's way cooler, it's streamlined, and it's just it's like wow, why did I ever need that? But you did need yeah. it in a sense, but not in the final product to spare the reader. You needed it as a writer at first, but for the reader, you know, you get to that leaner state, and you're like, yeah, this just moves. This is an athletic piece of writing. Yeah, that's when I was in um, when I was in grad school. We were in uh, Frank Conroy's class. He used to call that the that those words that the writer needs, but that have to go by the final draft. He used to call that the scaffolding mm-hmm. that you put up basically to get the work done, but you have to take it down at the end. Um, and yeah, I totally agree. Like, and having you know making mistakes or having these ideas, it's you know sometimes you can compress a scene into one sentence, and it's yeah it's so much better. Um, we were at a uh, Dave Housley and Mike Ingram and I were all representing Barrel House at this event at a at an MFA program, and someone asked, you know, what's sort of a hard question, but they asked, like, what's what, the biggest mistake you see people making in submissions? And it's there's lots of answers, but one thing Dave said was, I don't think we've ever taken accepted a piece and told the author you have to add something here. We always are telling them to cut if mm-hmm. we if we're telling them things uh, for the exact reason you just said. And odds are that writer probably did make what they deem to be significant cuts already. Yeah. So it's almost like you, you want to just overcorrect, you know, take a big swipe at it and 
you know, it's like, it, it, like we said, it's invariably better. Yeah, absolutely. So what, ad, what advice or questions do you hear most from aspiring writers or your students um, who want to be, who want to be like you, who are, you know, writing books and essays and, and living the life of a working writer? So with students, I mean, the first they ask a lot of questions about kind of logistics, you know, what, how did, how does publishing work, that kind of stuff. But then probably the most common one is like, how do you know when something is ready? You know, how do you know when something's ready to go out? And that's such a hard one to answer uh, because, I mean, probably there are some writers who have really good answers. For me, it's, it's such a going by, by feel and it's only by having written a, a ton of words in the past 10 years that I know – I have a pretty good feel for when I've made something as good as I can make it. But I mean, typically with students, it's that they're just like when I was a student, they're, they're not as willing to go through and do the extra three drafts or whatever it is. Yeah. How do you know when something's ready? That's probably the biggest question. Do you have a good answer for that one? I, I guess it's, I guess a lot of times if you're allowed to just work constantly, it will, you will always find a way to, you'll always find things to change and, to just ham chip away at chisel, change this, add this two weeks after you think you're done. Like you hear a song that triggers a memory and it's like, Oh, that's good to add. So it's almost like it will never be finished. So I I feel like it's to the point where I feel like it's super, you know, it's super lean. And I just, eventually I just have to cut the tie and just like submit it and being in newspapers for a bunch of years and all that. And having those kind of deadlines where it didn't have to be, good it just had to be good enough sometimes yeah you kind of build that muscle and uh, where you just you have to be fine with with shipping no matter what you just and so i guess and i I would say that but then when it invariably gets rejected i'll be like okay well let's (laughs) let's work on it a little more and see what might have been the problem and tweak it and send it somewhere else and yeah so i I guess that it is a feel thing. Like you, you write millions of words and you just kind of get a sense like, yeah, this is about as far as I can take it. Yeah. And that thing that you said about it doesn't have necessarily to be great. It just has to be good enough. Is like the idealistic young version of me would have said like, that's bullshit, man. You know, only it has to be perfect, but like, it's just not, I mean, it depends what you want, I guess. But if you want to be sending stuff out on a relatively regular basis, you just have to, you have to commit to some things and yeah. then, yeah, and I think if you're if you're submitting uh, books or book proposals or query letters, uh, essays to prestigious literary journals, like yeah, you that better be damn good when you send it out. It's, yeah, like that's that's not a time for it to be good enough. Uh, yes. That has that has to be fucking great, you know, as great as you can make it, and because uh, it's representing you, you know, you don't want to send off stuff that's completely and, and entirely shoddy. Yeah, and, and the numbers game is so stacked against any individual writer on on submissions to a literary journal or something like that, that or for book submissions that, yeah, you you can't afford to stand out in a bad way. Yeah, yeah, the subjective nature of things makes it uh, when you if you are you know technically off, if just give them one little aberration to say no, I mean, you just you have to be so undeniably good that you know they can't say no, but there are so many reasons to say no to you. Over the yeah. course of the editorial process, as I'm sure you know, as an editor at Barrow House, you know, there's, yeah, there's just these little things. Like, if you can't get that right, I, I don't, yeah, this has got to go. I've got a big pile to get through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
So when you when you decide on a, to take on a writing project, whether it be nonfiction or fiction, um, what has to click into place in your head to put all of your creative energies into it? Um. Yeah, so let's start with fiction. Uh, the voice has to be something I'm engaged and excited to write. Like, so this, the current book I'm working on uh, is about the aftermath of a school shooting in this town. And it started for a long time. I had this idea that I was going to have like 10 different points of view and I was going to do all these different characters. And I w- it was a slog for me to even try to get into the voices of these people. And it just it just wasn't I just I didn't I wasn't interested. And I kept making excuses not to do it. And then finally, one day, I started writing this one character, this one voice, and it's just like, oh, there it is. You know, I finally, I've, I figured out what I wanted to sound like. Mm. Uh, same thing with the novel that's coming out in a couple of weeks, The Young Widower's Handbook, where uh, that one happened faster, where I had this idea of this guy whose wife dies, and he takes her ashes with him on a road trip across the country. And I sat down to write the first chapter, and like the first couple of sentences came out in this way, you know, how like... Uh, like a basketball player, if they can't miss a shot, they'll, they'll say like the rim looked huge. It was, that's how I felt when I was writing that. It was just like, Oh my God, this is, this wow. is the easiest writing I've ever done. Uh, and so then I said, I got to go with this. Like I'm, it gets me excited when the voice is right. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's probably true of nonfiction too. Although I probably have like pretty similar, I mean, since it's, it's me, uh, I have a pretty similar voice in most of my essays. Um, and there it's sometimes I feel like I need to find some sort of uh, this, this is not the way I want to use. I was going to say a hook, but then I know they teach this. All my students want to have a hook and that for them, that means like a catchy first sentence. Uh, I want to have some sort of emotional thing that I can hang all this stuff on. That's not just me saying, let me tell you about six things I did in a row when I went to Seattle or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And there has to be a kind of an element of fun and play involved yeah. too when you're writing this kind of stuff. I know when that's what gets me into his own. Like I have to remind myself, like this is kind of fun. You're lucky to get to do this. Um, and I've heard David Foster Wallace say that too, like mainly referring to writing fiction. He's like, it's just, I don't know. It's just good fun. And, you know, in that really soft voice he had. And, and you can tell a lot of times, uh, especially in his nonfiction when he's having a good time and yeah. uh, his, like his, his tennis essays, one on Federer and one on another guy was like the number hundred player in the world, which is just brilliant. You can oh, just the t- Michael Joyce one. Oh yeah. my God. I've, I've read that like five times. I can't get enough of that essay. That one's just so, so good. And, yeah. uh, but yeah, just, but you can tell he's having fun. And when that, when you're having fun, man, it's just, you're just clicking off pages and you know, the reader's going to have a good time too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's the, yeah, it translates when the, when the author is really, enjoying something the same way it does when a musician is really excited uh, and and engaged in what they're doing or a dancer or any other artist yeah yeah it's it's funny you say that. like I, a few years ago uh, this store i was working for they you know they got us tickets to a show and this was in SPAC, the saratoga performing arts center and it was like freaking doobie brothers in chicago <laughs> <laughs> and uh but watching the i had never seen the doobie brothers i'm barely familiar with their music but they were out there and they were just playing. They were opening for Chicago. And like after every song, the lead guitarist and lead singer, I don't even know his name. He <laughs> just like pump his fist and he was just like having the best time of his life. And uh, <laughs> I was just like, oh, that's so cool. You know, like, if you can bring yeah. that to your craft and just that love and that love and, and energy behind it, it's like who, who isn't going to follow you into your into your creative fires, if you will, you know? 
Yeah, and it also helps you to sell work that maybe isn't if you know if you're not one of the most brilliant writers in of your generation, like like Wallace, then it you know that that energy is and urgency is the sort of thing that helps you differentiate you and and sell what you're doing too. Yeah. So what do you uh, when do you do most of your writing? What's like that your morning routine when you're cl- clicking off pages? How does that start? The best days are so I'm lucky my teaching schedule is pretty open. So I usually have like two days a week where I'm just at home. I don't have to be on campus at all. And so those are often very busy days for getting stuff done. Um, where in theory, the way it works, I'll, I'll get up, I'll have some breakfast, then I'll, I'll go up, I'll mess around on the internet for a little bit, then I'll go upstairs and I'll work until lunchtime, basically. Um, so like a three to four hour kind of thing. Some days I spend more time on the internet than the actual work part. Uh, but and on is, the days that like they, a, is that like a, a sustained block where you're just generating or is it sometimes you kind of, uh, you know, you're doing a little, then you step off the treadmill and then you get back on the treadmill. Uh, if it's, if it's like a new project, it's pretty sustained usually where I can, I'll, you know, I could in that time I could come up, I could do three to 4,000 words, uh, that I feel okay about, uh, knowing they'll have to get edited. Um, and then, it, you know, it'll vary. Like right now I'm in the stages with a new thing where I'm doing – I'm rereading it a lot. And so like yesterday morning, you know, my job was just sitting there reading uh, reading out loud actually and trying to catch a lot of the stuff that that wasn't – that didn't sound right. Um, that's probably the, the, the primary – there's lots of variables. That's the, that's the main work thing. And on, on school days when I'm teaching, I'll try to get up. Uh, around like six and try to get at least an hour of, of actual work in before I go. And I, you know, kind of tire my brain out. And, uh, were, were you always, uh, creating mainly in the morning? Is that just your circadian rhythm or have you experimented throughout the day to try to, you know, figure out what works for you? I used to be, used to say I work better at night, but I realized that was an excuse to put the work off. And then, cause it's so much, you say, oh, I'll get it done tonight, but then stuff comes up or you get too tired or whatever. So I started doing it in the morning basically to try to subvert my own worst impulses uh, of, of procrastination and stuff like that. And uh, what is the key for you to sustaining momentum over the long haul of a, of a novel that's three to 400 pages? I struggle with that sometimes. It's um, often I get about halfway through and I realize like I've written myself into a corner or this plot ha- is going nowhere and I don't know how to, I don't know how to keep it rolling. And so sometimes it's 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 grinding, you know, like knowing that if you grind through uh, a chunk of work that you don't feel great about, that eventually something's going to click into place. Uh, which is not to say I'm not one of those writers that's like you have to lock yourself in the chair for four hours a day no matter what and stare at the blank screen if nothing happens. And um, But I do feel that it, for me it's valuable to sometimes force myself to write things that I know are just not going to be good because I need to – it's like it's, it's almost like dislodging the bad ideas from my brain or something, which I know that's not a scientific uh, <laughs> theory. But uh, it's you know kind of grinding it out for a couple of weeks sometimes. You Usually, at least so far, I've found a way to like – a way back in or to like rediscover whatever it is that, that got me excited in the first place. How important are those, uh, maybe afternoon or a uh, long walks, uh, how important are those to you to kind of unplug from what you're doing? And like, how do you use those to kind of, uh, I don't know, 
not not put gas in the tank, but at least to unplug and um, get away from it so you can come back fresher. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's, I mean, a lot of writer, or a lot of people have talked about that idea, right, that it's like letting your subconscious get to work, you know, coming up with ideas in the shower and those kinds of things. And I do, I keep, you know, on my phone, I have a long list of notes and things that I think of in, in kind of random spots. The phone's a real lifesaver on that front because I used to have scraps of paper everywhere and I would lose them or I couldn't read them. And yeah, it's a, a very valuable kind of getting away from a thing. So sometimes, you know, when I'm, when I'm in one of those periods where I'm grinding, maybe it's like, well, let's just not look at this thing for a week and then maybe something will, will click into place. Maybe you'll figure something out or, you know, that, that kind of magic that happens where someone says something that all of a sudden your brain rearranges everything the way it's perceiving the book. Mm. And what other hobbies do you employ? Uh, here I'm using that word unplug again, but from writing <laughs> or reading or teaching, you know, just something that's complete, a complete departure from, from what you from, from your vocation to just get, you know, to feel fresh. Uh, I watch a ton of sports. Uh, mm -hmm. I watch a lot less football now than I used to, uh, for a variety of reasons, but, uh, among them concerns about kind of like the ethics of supporting an organization that seems bad um, yeah. in the NFL. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. Uh, I kind of struggle with it too. Um, but I watch a lot. Of, I, I watch the NBA uh, a lot. Uh, so that's, that's among my hobbies is watching the NBA and having opinions about the NBA. Um, then um, my wife, I basically hang out with my wife, going out to dinner, traveling going to see that kind of stuff that's where um a lot of my my non-writing reading related energies go are there any other um other forms of artistic media that you like to consume that that kind of helps helps with your writing um yeah i it's, it would be hard to draw a direct line but like i i mean i listen to music basically the whole time i'm working um and i know some people can't have that those like competing streams in their head uh but for me it's on all the time and it the what music i'm listening to varies wildly uh you know whether it's some days it's stuff i'm picking specifically to like because i because of a specific mood i'm trying to be in but a lot of times it's just like whatever's on uh and i don't yeah like i said it's hard to say exactly how that helps <laughs> but mm -hmm. it's definitely it's part it's part of the whole atmosphere there um and i like watching my wife does not like watching these, so I have to watch them by myself. I like watching um, very slow, sad movies about sad people, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> like um, like uh, the uh, what's the w movie with the long title? The the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. That one. Uh, that's like my quintessential example of that's the Brad Pitt Casey Affleck uh, uh, of the sort of a movie that I re under totally understand why some people hate them, uh, but I kind of like to immerse myself. You know, for a long period of time in kind of a bleak uh, movie world. Huh. And, yeah, yeah. Um, what book or books do you revisit the most? They reread to kind of remind yourself, like, oh, that that's how it's done. So I'm not a I'm not a huge rereader in the way. So like, I know some people have you know, like they have a book, a certain book they'll take off the shelf once a year and reread it or things like that. Uh, I think the thing what helps probably the answer to this is the things that I end up assigning my fiction and nonfiction classes where like, um, when I'm teaching not creative nonfiction, we'll read the fourth state of matter by Joanne Beard. And every time I say, Holy shit, this is the, this is so good. 
I don't even know how somebody wrote something this good. You know, uh, that's one of those essays where I read it and I think that there's this whole like three tiers of quality of writing above what I'm doing. That's inspirational, a little daunting. Um, yeah. And it, it just it changes the way I, I think about it. And every time I'm excited to go back and read that one. Um, but and there's there's examples like that kind of on actually that's probably that's probably the one out of all the things I assigned that every time I read it I think I'm so disappointed when certain students don't like it because I want to say like no you have to <laughs> you're reading one of the best things <laughs> so um, before I let you get out of here um, what are what are you most excited about uh, right now with the release of the young widower's handbook uh, as that as you're getting ready to really uh ramp up publicity for that like how you know what's that experience like and what are you most looking forward to uh it's so it's been a long waiting period since i signed the contract i think i signed the contract in late 2014 and uh due to like quirks and publishing schedules and things like that now gonquin only puts out uh, i think 10 novels a year and so they you know could only slot me in where they could um i'm really excited like I, i finally got the actual finished books uh two days ago it's like it's i did a I did an event at this conference uh where i was signing books and so it's just it's very exciting to see the actual book exist in the world and we can finally get on with whatever's going to happen with it yeah. uh you know it's just been it's such a long wait uh where i've been i think we waited longer for it to come out than it took me for took for me to actually write the book uh and so i'm just i'm excited to finally be out and do some events where hopefully people show up and um yeah just like let the thing be in the world finally and and hopefully you know, let it sink or swim yeah what's what's kind of crazy is that you're going to get people asking you questions about it as if it you just finished it like mon- yeah. monday but like you finished it probably i don't know 18 months ago or whenever you actually like put the final bow on it and um you know, I think of course they send you revisions, but it, it's like you were a different person when you finished that book, and you almost have to go back in time and remember who you were when you wrote it, and uh, that yeah. was, it's it's kind of disorienting, I, I, I imagine. But so, uh, but anyway, it's probably going to be good fun in the end. I hope so. We'll see. But yeah, you're right. It's definitely like, oh, let's go back to this time in my life uh, when I was doing this, when this was the the thing that was preoccupying me every day, but I've like put it away for so long because yeah, um, now you're on to another another book and so it's like oh yeah i gotta remember who i was and where i was and what inspired me about this book at that time it's right yeah well very nice tom always a pleasure thank you so much for coming back on the podcast this was a lot of fun yeah thanks for having me on man yeah you got it and we'll uh, we'll be in touch for sure great best of luck with the book all right thanks a lot talk you, to you later all right later tom